A new campaign from the Army Reserve looks to reach those that want to serve, but also still strive toward their goals in other career fields. The launch coincides with the Reserve's 115th birthday and includes four films showing how the experience can complement other careers. I got the chance to speak with Major General Alex Fink, Chief of Army Enterprise Marketing, to ask him all about the It's Your Time campaign. If we could, if it's okay, Eric, why don't we just back up a step and talk about Be All You Can Be? That's really the sort of the umbrella launch, uh, which is the the new Army campaign, and that is an Army for all services, all, all components. That includes active duty, Army National Guard, and Army Reserve. And so, within a brand, you know, brand process or a brand launch, which we did back in March, there were four elements. One of those elements was called the brand architecture, and within a brand architecture. You you try to make sense of how do you communicate the goodness of all of your sub-brands. And within the Army, one of our sub-brands would be the Army Reserve. You know, another one would be the Army National Guard. So still part of the BLU-Can-Be campaign, but It's Your Time is a specific campaign that is for Army Reserve. So it really helps to reveal the part-time path to service. In other words, you can be in the Army Reserve and still have a private sector career. You could still be going to school or whatever. So it's your time really kind of has two two sorts of things right to it, right? It's about time. First, as a reserve soldier, you do most of your duty outside of the traditional Monday through Friday uh, work week. Uh, you do it typically on weekends. So in a, in a way, you're literally doing your duty on your time, if you will, if you think about the weekends traditionally as your time. Then there's a second sort of element to this, and that is kind of what you were referring to earlier in that it's your time to level up. It's your time to make a difference. It's your time to make your mark. So it really sort of exists on two separate planes, one very specific about how you serve in the Army Reserve and how you can make the most out of your time doing your day job thing during the week. And on the weekends, when you have duty, doing the Army Reserve thing, then, you know, at a different level, it's more about that. It's, it's your opportunity to actually make a difference in the world. Yeah, you're coming at a time when workplace flexibility is front and center, uh, especially after the pandemic. And, uh, you know, I, I've been seeing the ads myself you know, on social media and whatnot of, you know, you can serve your country, but also still maintain a, a career in whatever path you want to take. So where did this idea of maybe having the uh, Army Reserve as a, a, a side hustle in, in air quotes, uh, how did that come about? So that's, I love it that you just called it a side hustle because that's jokingly what we what we referred to it. Sometimes there's a there's not there's a how do I say this? Not everybody likes the idea of part time. Uh, it is truly part time. You're not doing it full time, so it's by definition part time. But it, it, it sort of sometimes mitigates or, or minimizes the relevance or the importance of what you're doing. And because a lot of us do do it full time, uh, we have you know we're on active duty, and in fact. Uh, you may not know this, Eric, but I'm an Army Reserve officer. So I spent a majority of my career in a part-time or, as you said, side hustle role doing the Army Reserve thing on the side, which is exactly how I got to where I am today. You know, I had a, a day job, civilian career in marketing and strategy and sales. I had in my uh, Army Reserve career had advanced through the ranks as an Army logistician. 
And when the army needed a senior military officer, senior army officer to run marketing, who knew something about marketing, I was able to just very naturally step into this role to lead the army's army enterprise marketing office because quite frankly, of the civilian acquired skills uh, that I've, that I've garnered over the last 20, 30 years of my private sector career. Yeah. And you use yourself as as an example, and it's a good segue for my next question, which is in talking to current reserve members, is that what you've noticed that you see all these different kinds of careers and they, you know, talked about how, you know, this is kind of their, their second job and they, it's a chance to serve and whatnot. But is that what you all found in surveying the reserve members that I'm sure you did for, you know, researching this campaign? Yeah, you know, I think a, a lot of folks, people join the Army and to include the Army Reserve for a variety of different reasons. And so, you know, what the campaign is really trying to do is capture as many of those relevant reasons as possible. We're not, we don't want to necessarily say you should join for this reason or for that reason. We really want to try to keep that up to up to the prospect. So some people will join and we try to we try to bring this out in the campaign for certain types of skill sets that they can acquire. Think about those as very tangible type of benefits. Uh, Others will want to join because it's part of a group, a part of a group that I can be part of that makes me different, you know, than just maybe my my civilian workday. So we think about that as that community aspect. Some of it is, as we started out, just literally a passion, a passion to do something in terms of making a difference in the world. I did it particularly because I quite frankly, in a somewhat sometimes intense civilian job, I needed I needed to do something different, completely different than what I was doing during the week on the weekends, just for my own mental health. I was able to disengage from my day job. I got to do something that was cool. I got to be around soldiers. I got the opportunity to have unique leadership experiences and, and do all the things that soldiers get to do. And I and then I could go back to my day job, you know, on Monday morning. So uh, it was a, it was just sort of that opportunity just to do something different to sort of break away from the routine that I had in my day job. We're speaking with Major General Alex Fink, Chief of Army Enterprise Marketing. And if I could just get a little behind the scenes action and on a day when, you know, we we're hearing about a uh, writer strike on the uh, TV side of things, uh, when it, these are, you know, four ads. And when it comes to these commercials, I just am curious about the writing process, what the writer's room looks like uh, when you all are writing up these recruitment campaigns. Yeah, great question, Eric. You know, this is sometimes the, you know, a little under, a look under under the hood of how you develop ads. And I think it's important for people to, you know, people don't necessarily appreciate this or, or, or understand it, nor, nor do they need to, or should they, about the creative process. But we always start with a business problem. What's the business problem that we're trying to address? We don't start out with throwing ideas about commercials against the wall. We start out with a business problem. In the reserves, it's kind of a relevancy issue, the Army Reserve. People just, it, they don't exactly know where to place that when they think about it a, a relative to other options for their time. And so that's kind of the challenge, right? It's just kind of irrelevant in a sense. And so we have to figure out how to make it relevant. That becomes our business challenge. And then it's really, okay, creatively, how can we do that? And we don't, we don't go to the writing room. We don't start looking at execution until we've, really developed a creative strategy. What's our way in? And we'll usually come up with two or three ways in about how to make this a more relevant type of, of option for youth to think about how they would use their extra time. And then when we finally get there, we 
we look at, okay, we've got two or three ways in that we really like. Now let's, let's let the writers start doing some of their magic and see what, see how we can bring this to life. And we'll write a whole bunch of scripts. I mean, we, we, you know, we landed on four. I, I don't exactly recall the number we had, but it wouldn't be surprising me if we didn't have 20 or 30 scripts out there at one time. And, and all of them start out pretty rough. And then just through the process, we refine them. Sometimes we take parts of one and just, just as uh, any other writing process and figure out what we really like. And then we, um, when we go to our leadership and, and uh, make sure they're cool with it. And then we bring it to life. And bringing it back to you, you talked a little bit about your career path and it is coming to an end now with the army in your current role. Um, I'm just curious about your thoughts on the future of, of uh, army marketing and where things started when you first got in there and now where you see things are as you're leaving the post that you're in now. Yeah. Uh, thank you for asking that question, Eric. You know, uh, so I was, I had this phenomenal opportunity in the United States Army because I was an Army Reserve officer to serve at a level that I could have never planned. And so I was asked, and I'll put asked in air quotes there, not really asked, but uh, brought on active duty as a two-star, as a major general, to to not just lead this organization, but to build it and really try to understand what does a modern marketing organization, what should it look like? I had great support from my supervisors at the Pentagon. I report pretty much straight to the top. And so brought a lot of great support from, from the folks within the army leadership. We did a pretty significant assessment as to where we are relative to what a modern marketing organization should be. And we spent about that first two years, what I call catching up a lot of work we needed to do, particularly in our data infrastructure systems and our market research foundation, really understanding prospects. So that was catching up. That was sort of phase one. As I think about phase two, that's the launch of be all you can be. And then all of the subordinate campaigns that will rest underneath that to include it's your time for the army reserve. And I call that world-class we're doing world-class stuff. And then phase three is really going to be taking the lead. And we've got a phenomenal innovation process. We're really looking at cutting edge ways to connect with our audience uh, outside of maybe traditional types of media that you think about. I will probably always do some of that traditional media, but we're looking at a whole bunch of different, different ways to kind of cut through. I call that taking the lead or phase three. And uh, my successor will have the opportunity to hopefully execute, plan and execute phase three. Major General Alex Fink is Chief of Army Enterprise Marketing. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. 
Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at 
um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have You mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you've got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. 
and um, mm-hmm. being born in rural southwest uh, mm-hmm. Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.